Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! Thank you. Thank, wait, well. All right. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Can you hear me back there? Right. You can pass it around. When yeah, we'll just shove it down. Okay. Or hold it. Yeah, we could. We could. Um, uh, yeah, so Susan is, was one of the few authors asked to participate in the library convention, so it's a big honor. Uh, so she is in the Midwest right now, but oh, is this an amazing panel. All of these people are, are featured heavily in the book, and I'm so excited to get to talk to you guys. Um, but before that, I want to show a little video. Uh, this was my introduction to Susan, and it's just a few minutes of a short documentary made by my friend Tessa Blake. Right. Oh. I was locked up for four years, that's a long time. I was happy to be out, but still scared because, you know, I guess because we're creatures of habit and you want to feel secure and safe. They drive you to the uh, bus station and, you know, they give you $200 and they buy your ticket out of your money and put you on a bus and uh, you're just headed to wherever. And so I arrived downtown L.A., and it was really scary. It was really scary. And I looked like I came from prison, you know, dusty-looking, you know, with jeans and a paper bag. Everybody knows that you're from prison. They know. Just by the way you look, and they know. You get approached by everybody. There were people asking you if you needed a ride, telling you that you look fine. Drug addicts, people living that life, and you know they are. It's so easy to get lured, especially if you're scared. And, and I, to be honest, I was scared. And I felt like I was just standing there buck naked. I didn't have any place to go. I really didn't. And I called Miss Burton, and uh, I told her, I said, I received a letter from you, and you said for me to call you and that you would pick me up. And she says, where are you? And I told her, she says, I'll be there in about 15 minutes. And she came and picked me up. So they come into a place and be able to drink out of a glass and not plastic, to sleep on a mattress and not metal, and to have food, have choices. It's just stuff people take for granted. Miss Burton is so sweet. She's a good lady. I'm glad she picked me up. This house is the beginning of a new way of life. Uh, I, I got it uh, in 1998 and fashioned a house for women who have been incarcerated. And that's where I started. When I left prison, 
I went to treatment and got a job and you know I saved the money and I saved about twelve thousand dollars yeah and I mean I saved every dime some months I didn't spend but forty dollars a month for anything that I needed and um, everything else I, I saved and I didn't understand why or what I was saving for. I didn't know I was on my way to creating something that would um, have the, the ability to change lives. I tried to get help in the same fashion that I had received. By the way, before we begin, I know it's hot out, out, and it can get quite stuffy in here. I, I'm usually on that side of the table, and uh, stuffy is in temperature, not the, not the people. Um, so help yourself to any, you know, make feel free while we're talking to make your way through. There's cold drinks, frozen desserts. Um, please help yourself. So so uh, that clip featured uh, Susan and a glimpse of one of the homes of a new way of life. And Susan uh, and her foundation there now have five homes, all in South L.A., in Watts, Compton. And around 1,000 women and their children have made their way through the homes. And I saw this film at a charity event, and Susan was there, and I ran up to her after and said, I think you have a book in you. And she gave me a very intense stare, not unlike the one on the cover of the book, Tiffany's laughing. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this stare told me, and rightly so, that she was a force to be reckoned with. And it took, it took a little convincing, um, and then two and a half years later, here, here we are with the book. So uh, the book is, is Susan's life story. It's through her eyes. But the people on this panel were integral um, to that life story. And they're all featured heavily in the book. I think you all have at least a chapter, if not more. So I'm delighted to introduce everyone. So right here we have Tiffany Johnson. Okay. <laughs> Tiffany first heard about a new way of life on the grounds of Central California Women's Facility while serving a 15-to-life sentence. Seven years ago, was it only seven years, oh my God, she was released and walked through the doors of a new way of life. A few years later, she joined the staff as a full-time community organizer, and she is now a new way of life's associate director and will one day fill Susan's shoes should she ever retire. <laughs> one of her board members is laughing. Um, uh, as a subject matter expert, Tiffany speaks throughout the country on the intricacies of overcoming reentry barriers after incarceration. Next, we have Saul Sarabia. Saul has devoted his life to developing social movements to end structural, structural racism and discrimination. He has a law degree from UCLA and was the director of UCLA School of Law's Critical Race Studies Program, where he and his students partnered with community organizations working for social change. 
They challenged racism in the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. They helped undocumented college students unite and build a social movement. And most notably, uh, worked with Susan Burton to create a joint UCLA law, a new way of life, legal reentry clinic, which is held monthly in Watts and Long Beach. And it assists formerly incarcerated people in fighting employment discrimination. And we have Antoinette Carter, whom I know is Tony. And Tony is the daughter of Susan Burton. Tony grew up in South Los Angeles, and her mom was in and out of prison for, for much of her childhood, for about 15 years, for nonviolent drug offenses. Tony broke the cycle. She attended UCLA and is now a human resources executive at a Fortune 500 company and the mother of two children and several pit bulls. <laughs> These are the best trained pit bulls you've ever seen. <laughs> Which is a testament to Tony. We'll get to that. <laughs> All right. So I have spent a lot of time with you three. We have had a lot of hours talking over the past couple of years and you are all inspirational but no one gets to be inspirational without going through some stuff and all of you have been through some stuff so I'd like to begin by asking about the process of being interviewed for the book which in large part dredged up a lot of that stuff and Tiffany I'll, I'll start with you because you like Susan use your life story and some very tragic events to help others. And what struck me so much when I first met you is your openness and your self-awareness. You took responsibility for your actions, but you also empowered yourself so that those actions didn't go on to define the rest of your life. And I'm wondering about that evolution because I imagine that took, um, that was very challenging and it took a lot of courage. And I'd love if you could talk a little about that. Hi, everyone. Um, do you mind if I just take this yeah, off? It feels fine. a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, Carrie, the, so as Carrie said, that I'm much like Susan, who's had a traumatic um, childhood, life experience, um, but we're different in subtle ways, right? Um, I went to prison in 1994, and I was sentenced to, I, I took a plea bargain, I wasn't sentenced, I took a plea bargain that um, held 15 years to life. I didn't understand the concept of it. Um, I was told one thing in essence there was something else so I was told by my public defender that I would only do seven and a half years on this 15 to life even though I was a victim um, and seven and a half sounded okay because I did do something you know I did take part in something but there was so much more that led up to that um, that was never discussed and because I had never been in the criminal justice system before I was really naive I, I knew nothing and I trusted in this public defender in that um, during my time 
I had to keep asking the question, what brought me here? You know, I, I completely didn't understand and couldn't nobody tell me that. So I had to begin to look within myself and drudge up a whole lot of painful stuff. Um, and by the 10th year, or even the 5th year, I, I think I had it uh, mastered and I could have came home. But instead, I had to fight real hard um, to get out. So I got out after 16 years. Yeah. Tiffany's chapter in the book is it's stunning. I mean, and, and we're going to touch on more of what you said. I, I, I have some more questions about those, um, about giving up your rights and, and things like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there's a, a, a lot of in-depth um, yeah. discussion in the, in the book. <laughs> All right, I'm going to hand this. Oh, Tony has her on microphone. Tony, you're next. So we're skipping over you for one sec. Yeah. We'll, we'll get back to you. Don't worry. Uh, so, Tony, <laughs> you were reluctant at first to be interviewed for the book, and maybe reluctant is is putting it mildly. Um, I think you're pretty adamant that that you that you didn't want to be involved, and in, and you know I can understand why there were a lot of ups and downs in your relationship with with your mom. So I was wondering what made you decide to open up. And how did telling your story affect your relationship with your mom and affect you? Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I don't necessarily feel that there's been... Um, an effect in either direction from my perspective. Um, I have talked to my mom and for her, um, there were a lot of things that went on in our lives that we never discussed. Um, I'm a very private person, as you know. And I think what com came out of it was my mother better understanding who I am, how I am, and why I am and why I was so reluctant. Um, the, the guardedness, I would say. Um, what came to me was um, a thought about, probably my brother, a thought about for, my brother was killed April 8th, 1981. I am a I was a math major. I'm a math numbers person. I remember dates, times, places. I have a photographic memory. Which I, made interviewing Tony and writing the book such a, so much easier. Um, you know, I can literally close my eyes and take myself back to a time and space and give you exactly details, colors of the walls and things of that nature. And I can literally go back to 1969 with those thoughts. So for me, there was always a negative space in my mind about my brother's death and the tragedy of it and him dying in vain. And so for me, there was a... Um, an air that left me with everything happens for a reason and everything that's taken place since then um, 
the struggles, the triumphs, and everything that my mother has gone through has made um, his death um, not so in vain for me. I should mention too that you know you talked about your extraordinary memory for details, and it was an interesting triangle we had because I would, <laughs> I would interview Tony, and and we would talk and talk and talk and talk, and then I would write pages and give them to Susan, Tony's mom, and a lot of the information. It was the first time Susan was learning of things that that she didn't realize Tony knew or remembered um, or felt. And uh, so it was, it was an interesting dynamic. And, uh, it was a Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every book has its challenges, yes. <laughs> um, all right, Saul. Uh, so for you, a little different take on this uh, as we're talking about family. Um, your family dynamic is quite interesting. You were the, the first in your family to go to college. You had never met a lawyer until you went to UCLA Law. And you took a very different path from many of your family members and many of the people you grew up with. Um, you were in a community where a lot of people got caught up in, in drugs and cycles of incarceration, and yet you went off and did welfare reform uh, and went to law school. And so I'm wondering if you could talk more about this, uh, the your trajectory diverging. Sure. Good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see you all here. Um, <clears throat> I guess where I'd start is... Um, for those of you who are from L.A., just providing a little bit of context, um, I was raised in northeast L.A., which is now undergoing significant gentrification, but in the early 80s, I grew up there until I was 15, um, something really critical happened, which was that um, neighborhood structures such as gangs, which in many ways... Um, provided a lot of um, social bonding for, for young people and um, when your parents were working in factories and in some of the lowest paid jobs here became your extended family um, were targeted by the California prison gangs um, as ways to move um, drugs for the first time in a significant way during the height of the cocaine um, ep epidemic and um, that I think made things in neighborhoods like Cypress Park, where I went to junior high school, and um, Highland Park, which, believe it or not, um, was was a very poor area at the time. Um, you know, the stakes, just the violence and the the, the uh, poverty, I think, just took on a different meaning. And um, one of the one of the moments of realization for me that um, we were relating to this underground economy, which was really sustaining a lot of people that were poor in Southern California, um, was changing, was, uh, you know, this, this sense that people were being drafted into, conscripted into an economy, uh, a, a set of demands from people that use drugs, 
um, on low-income families that were situated in such a way where drugs could be moved. And so I remember in eighth grade, we got a microwave for the first time in my house. And at that time, only rich, very rich people, from my, in my eyes, had microwaves. And so I felt like something had changed in the, in the economy of my household, but also in the political economy of, of the city. Um, my father, who worked in a factory assembling sofas, and my mom, who worked in um, sometimes the same factories, um, on the upholstery side, making the, um, the outside of the, the couches, had always... Um, you know, I was kind of like in awe of my dad and was almost afraid of, like he was so strict, I was almost scared of him. Um, and he would just say, you know, we're very poor, but we have, we, we work. And we're very poor, and your family members or people around you that have stuff and, and got it in this other way, you know, they, um, they're, they're just making bad decisions or bad choices. And somewhere along the line, you know, I think he just went from you can't beat him, join him. And something happened in our household um, where that changed. For my brothers who were, who, who were um, in the adolescence age where you get recruited into gangs, um, you know, there was a lot to be gained by being the member of a gang who could bring resources and and. and, and participate in this economy in a certain way. Um, I remember in the eighth grade writing a short story. I don't think I ever shared this with you. Oh, I don't know this um, Because I, I didn't, I, there was so much stigma attached to this, and I, I mean, we were all poor, but, you know, I just, I, I, I knew that there was something else happening that I didn't really feel safe to talk about. So I wrote down a little story and I shared it with my best friend at the time. It was called Trapped, an emotional short, short story. <laughs> I gave it a subtitle. <laughs> so, um, you know, that began my trajectory with all of the horrors of addiction. And so um, I ended up in, we, we moved when I was 15. Um, and we're in, a, in, a, in, in the San Gabriel Valley in a more suburban area where there was also drug a lot of drug use and drug sales, but um, it was also this time period where a lot of families who were participating in an underground economy and responding to a demand all over, um, you know, my house in high school was a place I was afraid to come home too often because there was so much traffic of people coming in and out. And so um, I, you know, I don't know that there's a moment in which there's a decision on my part. Like I'm not, I, not going to do this, I'm going to be the guy, but there was just a set of forces that led me to kind of be the the, the good kid in the family and um, wanting to do something different, and on uh, some level of it, I think, too, was a, a, an idea that, that school could be an escape from all that, and so even though I had no idea that there was, a, you know, something called graduate school or professional school, you go get a law degree, I just knew there was college, and that none of us had been there, and that I wanted to go there, um, you know, I just kind of, like, decided that's where I was going to dive into, and... Um, it took me a while to get to a point where I could have some compassion and understanding and critical analysis of what choices were being made by the people in my extended family and my immediate family. Um, I was, and when I was 18, I was a rabid Reagan Republican. What? Yes. All right, that shocks me. And um, I, you know, was very Catholic, but also closeted in terms of my sexuality. And so I think part of what was going on for me is I was searching for some kind of structure that I could hold on to and make sense of the world. Um, and um, at the same time, I had um, 
a deep appreciation for what I had learned and the relationships I had with the people I grew up with and the people in my family. And so I, I, I appreciated that. And part of the thing that I think drew me to Susan when I finally met her was, you know, no matter what kind of craziness was happening in my head to understand my, my process, I... Um, I just didn't drink the juice. Like, I guess I had some class consciousness and I had some race consciousness and I knew that there was some other story besides like there's good people, there's bad people, you're part of the bad people, there's something wrong with your family. And what's so interesting too is that you use um, your, your family and people you knew, you, you, know, you use the drug dealer model to provide examples for how to recruit for a social movement. Um, so you really utilize uh, your background, um, you know, as, as the whole panel does. I think that's one of the themes here, for yeah. sure. And, um, yeah, it's oh, fascinating. You have a book in you, too? <laughs> Trapped. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Trapped. <laughs> Tiffany, um, so, so one thing that you brought up before about the plea bargain, I'd like to talk more about that and, and other realms of, of how the system is, is so unjust. Um, one of the points that's stressed in the book is that for incarcerated women, many of their rights were violated before they ever set foot in a prison cell. And most incarcerated women were victims first. That is a statistic uh, that is around 90%. So uh, it's, it's not just most. It's, it's almost all um, of women in prison were victims first of, of physical abuse, of sexual abuse. And, you know, one right that is commonly given up, as you mentioned, is, is the right to a trial. It, it's a myth um, that that we that there is a right to a free a, a right to um, a trial in this country because if everyone uh, chose to go to trial, everyone charged with the crime chose to go to trial, it would crash the system. The system isn't designed uh, for everyone to go to trial. So there are these plea bargains that are offered, and you know you can you can speak more to that if you'd like. Um, and you know when when you had turned yourself in you you thought the truth would vindicate you you trusted in the system but it failed you and one of the, uh, the really poignant moments i remember that's in the book is uh, you went into prison thinking seven years, seven years, and on the prison yard, somebody sa- somebody laughed and said, uh, "You know, you have an L behind your name. That's not seven years." Um, so, you, in terms of all these ways, and the book sp- focuses very specifically on women, but and in terms of all these ways that that women give up their rights before. Uh, before entering the cell, entering the cell, getting out of the cell. Um, yeah, <laughs> very broad question. So you can take it, it, it is where very you want. Broad. Yeah. Um, so let me, for those of you who haven't read the book, um, and let me just give you a little bit about why we talk about me being a victim, and not only me, but so many women who experience traumatic, traumatic um, things in their lives before grade school, before high school, you know, are all through those years, right? So as a little girl, I was um, 
three or four. Um, my mother had four girls, and I was the third one. I'm a little nervous. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes you can talk about your life and be so completely relaxed and comfortable and just spill it. And then there are other times where you feel the every emotion of that past as if it's happening right then, right? And so this is the space I'm in. Um, why? I don't know. Because there's a room full of So. <laughs> staring at you. Um, at the age of five, my mother brought home this guy. You know, it was my birthday, and she forgot, and she um, woke up that morning and was like, oh my God, I forgot you, it's your birthday, let me go get you some presents, five-year-old girl, I'm so happy, because at least she's going. Right. Well, when she came back, she came back with the arm full of presents, but as promised. But she also came back with this guy, um, an older man. And from that day, I became his special little girl. Right. And so he groomed me very well to be in a lovingly relationship with him for five years. So... That's my background. After that, he, he stopped when, you know, young girls get their puberty, you know, and we couldn't explain me at 10 years old having a child, so our relationship pretty much ended. And it's sad to say that I look at it like that as our relationship, but it was when I do sit back down and dig into the deep recesses of my mind and my heart, he didn't hurt me, you know. He, he groomed me to be his whatever at five years old when you don't have a, a, a um, self-esteem, you're learning who you are, you know. So I was taught for many years to, to be his friend, right, his special little girl. And my life just snowballed from then. It just snowballed. Um, you know... Before I went to prison, as I mentioned earlier, I hadn't a clue that there were prisons for women. None. I knew women got in trouble. I knew that they went to jail, but they always came back. Right? Um, I, I committed a crime that I, I took ownership in, and I turned myself in, hoping that the whoever was in charge would understand, you know. Well, they didn't. They didn't even give me a chance, you know. Um, for six months, on a very high crime charge, I only did six months in a county jail, and then I was off to prison. You know, most people spend years, years fighting their case. I didn't get that opportunity. Um, I was rushed through the system, even though they claimed they realized that I was a victim, right? And so when I said that when I'm in, when I was in there, and I had to take a real good look at what had really brought me there. Yeah, I know I committed a crime, but what was the circumstances behind all of that? You know, um, my philosophy is if someone commits a crime, there's always, always, always something attached to that. Why don't we begin to look at the, the rooted problem 
Um, and then we have a better context. And as you said, we, we are literally forced to take plea bargains because you would get to get out early and you would be with your children and da 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 and your life can go on. And it's like, okay, <laughs> okay, because I trust you. Um, there's a lot of them, a lot of us behind those walls like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's sad. It's really sad. And, um, and you had used a public defender because you couldn't afford an attorney. And that's, you know, and we talk a lot about this in the book. Um, the, the public defender's office is so overwhelmed and understaffed that they literally cannot spend more than five minutes on a case. Um, and it's really much easier for them, and they can get on to the next file if you take a plea bargain. And, um, you know, we have a line in the book that uh, public defenders stood next to Susan many times and was no more useful than her own shadow. So the illusion of having representation, um, well, having representation, that's also an illusion. Uh, and, and, you know, at first we came down very hard against public defenders. And then, you know, you think about it, though, I mean, who goes into that job? You know, these aren't people who necessarily go in because they just want to lock people up. But they are, um, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, too. I mean, it's, it is the whole system that, that needs some overhaul. And in my household, they were called the public pretenders. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 I mean, that's what everyone in my household called them. And I mean, as a young child, I could navigate the criminal court system better than a public defender. I've had several conversations with public defenders and even offered suggestions on sentencing or sentence diversions for some of my family members. And so it's not that um, I didn't believe in the public defenders, but that that rock in that hard place, you are really, you're really an ant in that situation and you you would you would never be able to work in the in the state of California let alone maybe the United States if you as a public defender stood up against that system was my belief that's and in between that rock and a hard place is a human being and a human being who often could be much better served with drug rehabilitation you know with with counseling for mental illness um, with a variety of other services that, that are not offered in prisons. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So transitioning to a different part of uh, the legal um, aspect, but, but a very positive one. Saul, you have known Susan for some 20 years, and you introduced her to activism and to building a movement, and that's a large part of the book. You indoctrinated her. And one of the legacies, you did, one of the legacies of your relationship 
is the legal clinic, the UCLA Law, A New Way of Life Legal Clinic, which has really taken on a life of its own. And I'd like if you could talk a little more about that, of how it started and how it now um, has litigated very high-impact and class-action lawsuits. Uh, some, some really momentous stuff. Sure. So I, I guess just piggybacking on the conversation about um, how we're all conscripted into the injustices of the current uh, the current system that we have, I, I, I just want to say, as a student, when I went to law school, I think um, by the time I got there, I, I, I had pretty clear idea that there was... Um, you know, a, a, a system in which if you had money, you were likely to get a different kind of justice in this country than if you didn't. And, you know, I just I just think that it's important to step back and in the, that context say, like, there are people who go to law school who become public defenders and who, who spend their lives trying to do the right thing in a very unlikely situation given the bureaucracy you were describing given given all of this and so when I went back to to UCLA where I went to school and met a new generation of folks this was in 2005 um you know, my job wasn't to tell somebody who might want to become a public defender. In fact, the main attorney who's been there for, for the longest that knew of life, this is what he wanted to do with his life, Joshua Kim. Um, and he luckily ended up at a new way of life instead. But even if you ask him now, you know, I think there's a part of him who wants to be able to bring the kind of resources and the, um, the, the wherewithal of someone who's done all of this great work at the community-based setting to those that have no other recourse but to work with a public defender. And so I just I just think, you know, many ways this book um, is a reminder every, every in, in every chapter that when you have the kind of injustice that that comes from organizing the society around racism, organizing the society around economic hierarchy. You know, it's not that clean cut. You know, there's 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 a lot of really good people that end up wanting and are attracted to to trying to do change within the legal system, which was a decision that I made very early that I would not do because I I just that's not the the role that I wanted to have, and that's not the skill set that I thought would allow me to get people to think broadly beyond a particular case that I, I might be able to pour hours into. Um, and so going back to the law school, um, after having done community-based social justice activism, and a good chunk of that being through the Community Coalition, the organization through which I met Susan Burton, which was committed to this crazy idea that not lawyers, not people with law degrees, not politicians, but people who are actually affected by an issue in a democracy should believe and have mechanisms to actually shape laws, implement laws, make laws that are on the books real for them. Um, and in the case of criminal justice, in 19... 
she mentioned she got the house in 1998 in this video. So she and I met in 1999 when I had been indoctrinated with this crazy thinking. You know, I, I already had like an orientation towards wanting to do community-based work, but it wasn't until I got to the community coalition where I learned what community organizing is and how I might leverage a legal education to advance social movements. And so, you know, you do kind of have to be a little nuts to to take this kind of work on. And um, I, I ended up doing that work... Um, for I, I was out of school for about 10 years when I got a call from the law school saying we are being pressured by our students um, who are actually the ones inside of the law school interested in doing racial justice work. Um, the people who were enrolled in the critical race studies program who would then take the legal work at this organization to places that Susan and I only could dream of are people that had already signed up to on their JD specialize in critical race studies. Um, and so, and UCLA was the only school of its kind that had this. And so my orientation to that was to try to, um, from an organizing model, try to help them develop as leaders. And um, at that time, Susan and I had applied for a grant through a department at UCLA that was also responding to criticism that UCLA as a publicly funded institution wasn't doing enough in the community. It was called the Center for Community Partnerships. And they were giving nominal amounts of money to faculty or staff at the law school who could design projects that partnered students with community-based organizations. So that's why we decided to uh, develop this thing called the Prisoner Reentry Initiative. Um, our goal at the time was to have a group of students assigned to a new way of life who could support one of their uh, first major advocacy campaigns, and that was the campaign to end, to eliminate the question about criminal record convictions from job applications um, with, the, with the public agencies. Um, and it just so happened that at that time that we were approved, this um, policy proposal was coming before the LA County Board of Supervisors. And um, to make a long story short, it was a two-year grant, and within the first two months of that grant, the supervisors um, voted against this idea for a whole set of reasons. Um, and, and, and it was a great uh, opportunity for us because we still had you know, 22 months on this project. And it gave us an opportunity to work with the students and work with the women inside the home and the staff at Anui of Life around what, what do you do when you have all of these um, things stacked against you? You know, the stigma of being formerly incarcerated people who are supposed to go and testify and make arguments about why this law needs to be changed in a particular way. Um, the way in which legal counsel for the county was in Sacramento lobbying against this, this concept uh, where we eventually won. We eventually got a statewide law passed that said no public agency in California 
could include that question at the front end, and it needed to give people an opportunity to show that they were qualified to do the job for which they had applied, and then go through the interview process, and then do the background check at the back end. And all of this, for, for those of us who worked through the organizing model, and for some of the law students who had already come into the law school with a lot of organizing experience, a lot of people had graduated from undergrad, had gone to work in community-based settings, and felt like me that learning the language of the law might give you more power to be helpful to communities that were discriminated against and oppressed. And um, it was through that laboratory of having students interning at A New Way of Life that we get the first couple who say, this is where I want to practice. Now Susan doesn't have a law degree, didn't have lawyers on staff, but one of the things I think that's been an ingredient of her success is that she's been incredibly open you know, she gives people a chance to bring a new idea in and see how she can support it and how it can create alignment with where she's trying to go. And in many ways, it was such a reminder that the same model, I mean, when I first met her, she didn't have a 501c, she didn't know what a 501c3 nonprofit status was. She just went and got this house with somebody else and put bunk beds in the bedrooms and went and recruited women in the prisons she had been in and started to bring them and then discovered there were state regulations and, you know, responsibilities that would come with that. And it was this very DIY model in South LA. And, and so at that time, they built the legal department um, the idea of having a legal clinic was not even in the original grant. We um, decided to do that after we lost at the county level as an organizing strategy. We thought if we offer this service to people who need their records clean, we'll attract more people to the organization and then we can introduce them to the idea of organizing, not necessarily indoctrinate them, but just introduce them to this concept. And so it really was a strategy around that. Um, fast forward, uh, there's a full-fledged legal department. There are at least five attorneys there now. Six? Are there six now? And many of whom, Oh, five. I'm sorry. Many yeah. of whom are, are your former students. There are students who, who basically came through the legal clinic and would volunteer on Saturdays. It, uh, it's a very... Uh, a pretty straightforward process if you have a record um, there's a lot of paper pushing in the law as you all know and and so the students learned this in their first year you know they, some of them would go home by Thanksgiving and say this is the one thing I've learned in law school but it's not been in my classes it's been by going to this this organization in Watts on Saturdays and I, I know how we can at least file to get a record expunged um, but it, it was a gateway uh, in many ways, to try to get them to think, think more critically around why is this there? Why do we even do background checks? Um, what is driving putting people in prison in the first place for a lot of these things? Why are these statistics showing that there is no connection in the vast majority of cases between the conviction that the person has and the job they're applying for. Um, you know, if you were at 19, you were caught, caught with a joint, and you were sent to, if you're privileged enough, you, maybe you didn't go to prison, and she describes those differences in the book, right? Uh, but if you weren't, and you, you have the scarlet letter for the rest of your life, now you're 35, you have two kids, 
your you've been your record's been clean, you know, you have you're an upstanding member of the society, but this is experienced as a scarlet letter that marks you for second class citizenship. And so, you know, we talked about there are legal protections on there, but what happens when there aren't lawyers who are actually willing to vindicate that because who's gonna make a living out of doing expungements for ex cons? Um, and so we, we looked at all that and I think just created a, um, an experience for the students to begin to experiment in the way that Susan did. And um, sure enough, at the beginning, we actually got our hands slapped because um, most of the other legal clin clinics were self-help clinics where you know, we might come to a place like this and say, do you have a record? Do you want to get it clean? And then people would come. You'd help them fill out the paperwork. And the nonprofit legal organizations, for liability reasons, would make it very clear, make, have people sign something saying, we are not establishing a client-lawyer relationship, lawyer-client relationship. We just helped you figure out, fill out some forms with some legal advice. So a lot of those forms would never actually end up in an expungement because nobody could follow through if something happened or if it was denied. And so the students from the beginning thought that was crazy and they wanted to use the clinic as a means towards a bigger end of identifying potential class action lawsuits. And so one of the ones that, um, that um, Carrie writes about in that she referenced is um, there are these background check companies that are making millions of dollars as third parties. So they might go to Walmart and say, we will do the work of unearthing every applicant's criminal record history just in case they lie on their form or they are allowed to actually say they don't have one by the law. But if you really want to know this information, it can never really be erased. We will find it for you for a fee. And um, this particular co company is making $11 million a year, I think, uh, just on doing this kind of work. And um, the, the students, former students, now lawyers, they're just you know, being as creative as this environment called the New Way of Life. They innovated legal theories. Um, at one point they asked the question, if I go and apply for, for credit at a store and they deny me credit, they have to send me a letter saying why. And if I find that the thing that they based it on was something that's seven years old or older under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you know, the, the California, that state, the state has and that the federal government has, I can now go back and say, you, you were not actually entitled to deny me this credit, you know, this, uh, this line of credit based on this old record. And so why, why is that the case? for somebody who's applying for a job if it's 15, 20 years old. And so they were able to bring these cases um, with these new innovative legal arguments and win against um, some of these companies and are now um, doing things like suing um, the LA Unified School District and other public agencies that have practices that they're, if you just think about them logically, they don't make any of the sense that you and I would think about why we have this culture of, of uh, branding these people as others and um, basically subjecting them to 
second-class citizenship in a, in a bunch of ways in the society. So we're really proud of them and glad that they're able to actually have a whole department there. It, it really is a fascinating part of the book because it's a new way of life's attorneys. Um, and and what, what tends to happen is all these big law firms, you know, some of the biggest firms, uh, pile on for these class action suits that were initiated by a new way of life, um, you know, by these attorneys operating uh, out of uh, a small office in Watts. Actually, with the case that So mentioned um, against the background check companies, they were still operating out of a garage. Um, at Susan's home, and, and for that one, they got an eight million dollar settlement. Um, so, you know, really important, um, notable things going on, and that that's what sets a new way of life um, and Susan apart is is the whole um, activism component. I mean, it's it's really unique what what she has done, and she turns her women. Um, she, she helps them find the voice and turns them into activists. And, and you know, so many of New York of Life women are, are registering people to vote. They're advocating for, for or against certain props. And, you know, a lot of these women don't have the right to vote. Um, it's, it's state by state. In California, I think you, after you complete parole, uh, you, you, you get the right to vote um, back. But uh, but yeah, it's it's really something to see. Um, okay, one last question for Tony, and then we'll open it up to to questions. Um, so, Tony, you were raised primarily by your grandmother, Susan's mom, and Susan's brothers, your uncles, uh, five of them, were around the house as you were growing up. And uh, like your mom, they cycled in and out of prison for nonviolent offenses. Uh, but they were very protective of you and very kind to you, and they would uh, have you walking around the house carrying a dictionary because they wanted you to increase your vocabulary. Um, and yet they would give you stacks of cash um, for safekeeping. And Tony would, as a, as a young child, tape the cash to her body and wear it to school. And I'm wondering how your childhood affected your views of being a mother and how it influenced how you've raised your children, one of whom is here. Oh, yes. <laughs> this is my daughter. Hi, Elise. <laughs> she's my oldest. Um, she's 31, and I have a 13-year-old. Um, um, I think I've always looked at the mistakes uh, that were made by my mom and her brothers and try to uh, rationalize how I would move forward um, with my life. Um, my biggest fear was always going to jail. Um, without even committing crimes, it was a very big fear for me. Um, and trying to... Um, I think model that in my head. What what was it that I needed to do um, to to stay out of jail? The the stories that I was told. Uh, my mom told me about going to McLaren Hall, which was the uh, juvenile facility for children. Um, uh, 
when she was a child and not wanting to go there and not wanting to go to the county jail, you know, going to visit um, my uncles in the county jail and, and understanding as a child that, you know, you have this clock of 15 minutes to sit behind a glass and talk to someone and you could be, you know, literally in midstream sentence and the phone cut off. And that was the end of your visit, um, no matter what. And so for me, it was looking at the the things that happened, um, how they happened. It was um, it was a delicate balance. Um, I did tell Carrie Lynn about um, having a mother and five uncles all on drugs at the same time. And I'll, and I'll start with my brother's death. Again, my brother died April 8th, 1981. And within one year of his death, my mom and all five of her brothers were all incarcerated in prison across the United States. My mother was in Alaska. I had an uncle in Oregon in prison. I had two uncles in uh, Texas in prison with their wives and one uncle in the county jail and another uncle in fire camp. And I'm 15 years old. And to, for me, it was the pressures of having to support that type of criminal system is a, an extreme burden for any person. Um, to have the, the criminal system... It does not incarcerate a person. It incarcerates a family. You have, I remember my grandmother's phone bill in 1982 being $1,400 from collect calls. And they can only call collect. And they but, can only yeah. call collect. And, um, and the rates are not they're what as, No, they're I, astronomical. Yeah, the the different know. rates. Right. Uh, you, you know, we're saying rates of $3 a minute, $5 a minute. Yeah, they're gouged. Yeah. And having to prepare care packages to send to people in prison. Today, the prison system has made it very convenient for you. You go to a website, you click on the boxes that you want to send, you know, food, clothing, things of that nature to your loved ones, and it's all sent away to them. In 1981 and 82, you had to go and you had to purchase all of these things. You had to package them. The bag had, the box could not weigh more than 28 pounds or I can't remember 30. what, 30 pounds, and I almost said 30. And, you and know, if you, you were had, an ounce over, it got sent back. Right. And if you and sent it. And the scale it, was off. Right. And if you sent it and it was off, it would come back and it would take months for it to get there and there was one box a quarter and you know I'm, I'm being real specific but the, the pressures of having to navigate all of that as a support system and I was a child but it was me and my grandmother having to support all of that is tremendous the, the, the visitation my grandmother was too old and too weakened I didn't visit um, that much until I got a little older. As I got older, um, you know, it was, it was, I guess when you look at it and you, you know, people read the books and, and they come back to me and they say, you know, how did you navigate that? I, I did what I had to do to survive. You know, I was literally a straight A student. 
there was nobody that was going to keep me from going to school. And if you ask my mother, my uncles, anybody, I was not not going to go to school. When Saul said it was an escape, it was a, a serious escape for me. So there was a time where my mom was on drugs, another uncle was on drugs, another uncle asked me to hold let's say $15,000, and I think it was either fifteen or 20000 And I was to safeguard and keep that money, but I was to make sure whoever was on drugs didn't get to that money, take that money away. And so I had 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm trying to figure out what do I do with this money. And I lived in Los Angeles, but I went to school in, in the Valley. I graduated from Granada Hills. So I had to be up and out of there and at the bus stop by 645. And I called a friend and I said, I need you to come over here, come through my window, because I don't need my grandmother to know what's going on. But I took some duct tape and I taped that money to my stomach. And I wore a sweatshirt and I went to school. And I had a test. And it was very important to me. So navigating, understanding how you navigate through all of these different angles and avenues as a support system. The system is designed not only to break the prisoner, but to break the support system. You know, I know so many people who spend their life savings or check to check because they have to make sure that they take care of this person they have to do this and so for me it was understanding the pressures that I had to face and not wanting my children to ever have to face those pressures you know and so it was it was literally a deterrent for me I mean the things that went on the things that I saw on top of um, you know I know today police brutality is a very hot topic police brutality didn't start three years ago mm -hmm. police brutality in the black community has been going on from day one it's just your story is never believed today you have a camera today you have a phone you can take the pictures you can take the videos but the things that I saw um, and the things that I myself experienced led me to say, if I went to jail, I'd probably never make it out. You know, um, I can remember, and I can remember being with my mom one time when she was arrested, and I was five years old in 1972, and I can remember the policemen arresting my mom, arresting my uncle, arresting my mom's boyfriend at the time, and saying to themselves, you know, what do we do with this child? We don't, you know, where do we do, you know, where do we take her, what do we do? And I was sitting in a police car, but in that process of them getting to that point of arresting everyone, they slammed through the door, they made everyone get down on the floor, including myself, and I'm five years old. I'd been through this routine before, I knew what to do, I knew to be quiet, I'd never been told to get down on the floor, you know, hands, and, hands behind your back and things of that nature. Those experiences, you know, have have, you know, they made that negative impact on me, but they made such a negative impact on me, it was my duty to make sure that my children never really, never had to go through those experiences. So, Thank you, Tony. You're welcome. It's emotional. It's emotional, but, you know, it is, it is the way life has, you know, has dealt. I, I am... I'm happy with the product because what I've explained to my mom is um, 
we're all products of our environment, negative, positive, good, bad. We all take the experiences that we have, and those experiences that, experiences that I went through have all shaped the way, you know, I live my life, I do business, and I raise how I raise my kids. Questions from the crowd? Kimberly. Hi. Hi. I, I'm curious. I know that uh, I, I, I know Carrie, and I know that she spent a couple of years researching this book. But I would like to know why. What about this topic for you made you want to do this? Oh, great question. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, it, it is. It's an amazing story, and it's an important story. And um, you know, I know we touched on a lot of really tough subject matter now, but it's, I mean, the book is, it is, it is uplifting as well. I mean, these are, you know, amazing success stories. Um, but I, I, I also had a personal component. Um, when I was 22 years old, I put a man away for 60 years. Um, a friend and I were carjacked at gunpoint. And uh, this is dating me. Um, we were walking out of Blockbuster Video. <laughs> and um, uh, it was my friend's car, but I had the gun to my head. And the driver was apprehended. Um, the gunman fled. But the, the driver went to trial. And I testified. And there were so many aspects of it that didn't feel right, but I didn't know why. Um, I, I couldn't articulate. I didn't understand. I, 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 um, I, I, it was my first um, involvement with the criminal justice system. So, for example, um, at trial, he, about five minutes before the trial started, he fired his public defender, and he represented himself. And he was questioning me on the stand um, with things like, how do you know it was me? I said, well, I, I saw you. And, you know, it was so absurd. It was, you know, it was almost comical at the time, and yet there was something so um, desperate and wrenching about it. And, you know, now, knowing what I know about the system, you know, we talked about public defenders, and it, it gave so much more reason to, you know, to some of these events. Um, another thing he kept saying was that he had graduated high school. He was very proud of that, and he mentioned it a few times during the trial. And each time, you know, my heart ached. Um, and I remember being on the stand feeling so conflicted because it was a very traumatic event for me, and I, and I wanted this guy to be punished. Um, they had found the gun. It was loaded. He had extra bullets in his pocket. Um, you know, I knew uh, that it could have been a lot worse, um, and I didn't want him to have the opportunity to, to do this or worse to someone else. Um, but at the same time, you know, this, something wasn't right. I had these twinges. Um, and years later, I received a letter in the mail uh, he was he wasn't up for parole yet, but there's and I, I, I'm not calling it the right term, but it's the pre where you can um, 
maximum eligible parole date? So, you know, it's a long process. It takes years. But they were asking me if I felt that he should be eligible for the eligibility for the parole. And, you know, to write something. If not, my God, well, I can write something. Um, And, you know, again... All of this conflicting stuff was in my head because, you know, I was still having nightmares and, um, uh, you know, still was uncertain. I wanted this man back on the street, but was also very concerned about what was going on in prison. He'd been so proud that he had graduated high school. Was he able to take college courses? Um, Was he able to get job training? And and these were, I didn't have, I wasn't... uh, he didn't have the knowledge to be articulate about about these things that were bothering me on a level I hadn't accessed yet. So in doing this book, um, it allowed me to put all those pieces together. And you know, my only experience with the criminal justice system was as a victim of a crime. And this book allowed me to be on the side of, of a solution. Meredith, do you any can anyone can answer expect it to get worse under Trump? Yes. <laughs> I think there is a there is a divide in the community. Um, I don't want to uh, race bait white and black. I think there's a division and a divide amongst races and I think the division and the divide is growing amongst races with the Trump administration. I see such a destructive um, environment that they're so busy trying to tear down everything the last administration did that they will never have the ability to focus on what's going on right now. And I think that, you know, I don't think that we're doomed, but I think that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Responding to what you're saying, I think we all see that the most racist elements of society, individuals and institutions, are feeling a lot of permission since his election. They're taking that as a mandate that it's okay to not only reverse everything under Obama, but go way, way back. Um, so are the, is the, is the uh, criminal justice system as an institution uh, being affected by that? In other words, do they feel more emboldened to inflict racist uh, judgments on people, racist sentencing, racist, you know. So I would think that um, they'll just feel free to do what they've been doing. Right. It's okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay to continue to do, or actually we don't even need no kind of a reason anymore. Right. right. Under this administration, they have already redid a war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. It's not a war on drugs. It's a war on people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, is it going to be hard while he's in administration? Yeah. 
in a lot of different parts of society, it's going to be hard under his administration. But a new way of life and Susan and the organizing and the determination that we know without a shadow of a doubt that we matter, mm-hmm. um, we rise, right? We rise. And we try to get women who are really in the back burner even in the um, criminal justice system. You don't hear the conversations of how many women are in these institutions. When I went there, I was amazed. It was a college campus of women, right? But you don't hear about that. And then you don't hear about the effects of it. And you don't hear about what happens to them when they come back to the community. And so... Our fight, as is anybody's, you know, um, we have to stay focused. What is the what is the problem? Not even focus on the problem. How about we start looking at some solutions? And there's so many solutions out there, you know, that we as community should stick by each other. That's all we wanted to. And I want to point out, the, the, for me, the social and the economical ramifications of it. Um, in, in looking at my mother's work and uh, discussing some of the pieces that uh, her and, and some of the people have presented, when we talk about California just as one state, since I believe it's 1980, and either one of you correct, correct me if I'm wrong, California's built one university but 22 prisons. What is the mind state? How are we going to fund these prisons? Where's the money going to come from? Uh, the, the, if we shut down these prisons and we start with alternatives, what I can see happening is how, with those that run the prisons, they then look, what, how are they going to make their next social and economical dollar off of that situation? And what I see happening is this boom of electronic monitoring. And electronic monitoring, someone has to pay for that. So that's still an economical growth for some industry. But we have so many other solutions that can be taken that are, that are not visited because they don't hold enough money in order for those to, you know, to be powerful and be rich. California uh, California has the largest women's prison in the world. And a few months after it opened, it was beyond capacity. Um all right, one, one, uh, one or two, oh, uh, Vinny, who, board member of New Way of Life, featured in the book. Um, I just uh, would like to say that I've had the pleasure and the privilege of working with three people up here. And I, I met Tiffany um, seven years ago when she came home. And just to watch what an organization like A New Way of Life can do to transform people's lives, we are able to serve 30 women at a time. We're able to help them reunite with their families. We're able to give power to our women through Saul's training. Uh, one of the women I met at a, a Women Organizing for Justice uh, program 
came to us. She was in uh, college in the out in Riverside, and she came to us, and she became one of our organizers when when we promoted Tiffany to exec executive assistant director here. Um, um, Amber Rose came to us, and I walked into Chuco's the other day, and there she was training people in the community to do this work, to make it fair, to work for for um, bills to be passed, for people to be organized. I've worked with Tony to organize our gala every year so that we can raise funds to keep this going. This is not a little tiny problem. This impacts, as Tony said, the entire family, but the entire community. And if we, as citizens who care about this, don't stick together and speak up when we see injustice, if we don't vote for the right things that we know are the right things, then we're just all wasting our time and we can read all these wonderful books as possible. But I'm just telling you, the work that these three people right here and Carrie have done is just, it's world and life changing. And to empower our women and their families and our community is the most vital thing that we can do. And we really need your support when you get mail from us. We're, I hope you're all on our mailing list after signing up for this thing. And, um, and not just to put it on the side with, you know, you can some, let me know some if you'd like to be in the organization that is going to just, you know, use your money to buy stamps to ask people for more money. Every dollar we get at A New Way of Life changes somebody's life for real. Children meeting their families for the first time. Mothers embracing their children after 18 years, 41 years. It's like, you know, it's like really serious stuff. So it's well, and stopping the, the cycle affects all of us. Absolutely. I mean, it does not make neighborhoods safer to incarcerate people. No. That it, it, that has been proven. So, yeah. Thanks, Finney. Um, quick thank yous. Katie Davison filming this event. Um, thank you, Katie. But really cool. Katie and her co-director, Natalie, who's around here somewhere, um, have an upcoming documentary featuring Susan, produced by John Legend. And I'll keep you posted on all that. Yeah. And thank you to Skylight. Uh, you guys are amazing. This really is one of the best bookstores in the country. Um, the staff here, they care about books, they care about authors, but they can only do that with your support. So whether it's this book you purchase or any book, purchase a book, books make great gifts, um, please support Skylight and other independent bookstores. And thank you all for your... Thank you. Yes, thank you. And we'll be signing books. Saul has the last. We'll uh, all be signing books. One yes. last thank you. Well, for everybody who came here today, obviously, thank you for being here. But to Susan, who's not here, for allowing us to be of service to her work and uh, just the humility with which she operates, I think, allows all of us to be able to carry that message. But I just want to make a personal thank you to Carrie for the work that it took. Um, she started coming to some of the meetings. Susan's would tell me, Susan would ask me to do, like, can you come and do the basic one-on-one -on -one training for the new cohort of women? Because she's just built it into the DNA, right, that the recovery process is, is one thing that's essential to it is finding your voice as a citizen. And, you know, they go to AA meetings. They do a lot 
to deal with trauma and, um, and to build community as women. But she's just very clear that part of what helped her was she thought that having a nonprofit organization to do this meant you taught people politics. You taught people about the ramifications of one administration or another. And so she just does this as part of her work. But in that process, I, you know, just seeing all the people that have come around, I, I just, they had to take a very special kind of trust in person to be able to just also tell that story in a way that also allowed all of us to learn things about each other that we didn't know, including Vinny, you know, as a board member, I, it was really impacted. There was a chapter where she was talking about um, teaching students about the, the, in the Jewish faith, what it means to, to tithe and to serve. And, you know, Susan tells a, the story in that chapter where, the, you know, she gets a letter from Vinny and her students and the little money they scraped up to help at a moment. What's that? Zadaka. Yes. <laughs> where, um, she was just about to give up because she had run out of money. And I didn't know this about Vinny. I just said, okay, somebody else who's kind of crazy like us and is on the board, and we've been working together. I didn't know half of what I learned about Tony, her daughter, who had always been there. You know, they, they, Before the CNN Heroes Award, we used to do uh, gala dinners in Watts at this community center where she made this amazing banana pudding my nephew would love to come to have. And then we all had to learn, like, oh, there's a red carpet event and the people from Orange is the New Black are being honored and there's all these cameras. And, you know, we had to learn about this stuff and, you know, even learning about, um, you know, the, the, the depth of Tiffany's story. And, you know, for all of you who are writers out there, you know, I just want to also honor you and thank you because I know that that can be often a lonely process and, you know, the gift that you all give and that Carrie's given by allowing even those of us who are actors in the work to get to know our own story and each other is, is so vital. So thank you all. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.